and carry the show where we don't just report on fringe science, spirituality, claims of the paranormal. No way we take part ourselves. Yep. When they make the claims, we show up so you don't have to. Mm-hmm. I'm Ross Blotcher. I'm Carrie Poppy. That's Ella Poppy. Oh, yeah. Ella's right next to me in my lap. Yeah. Yeah. But doesn't feel like talking right now. Yeah, she's a dog. And that's okay. But we are very excited. We're interrupting our John Edward coverage. Yes. To bring to you... A fantastic interview with a fantastic person. Yeah, Sarah Jickling. Who we've known about for a while because I think she had messaged us on the internets. We found out she was a singer. We both like her music. Yeah, she really genuinely has good music. And it's nice when, you know, you have a fan and you can really be like, wow, this really is good. Like, even if you didn't like me, I'd like you. (laughs) Right. So we founded a mutual admiration society. We've all joined as (laughs) card-carrying members. We brought her on the show because she commented on one of our recent episodes where you had stated that you wish that there was training for kids to recognize some of these early signs of mental illness and Mm -hmm. sleep paralysis and other factors. Just being aware of it could be so helpful. Anomalous psychological experiences. Yeah. And just to normalize them and to put them in people's consciousness so that when they do experience that, they don't think, oh, no, I'm the only one Mm -hmm. and jump to some other conclusion. Right. Or, yeah, think they're being possessed. And so it turned out that amongst all her other talents, Sarah also has experience going around to schools and talking to kids about this. Yeah. She heard us wishing for this and she said, I used to fulfill that wish. (laughs) That was my job. Granted in the past. Yeah. So she used to do that, I guess, before COVID hit. But Mm -hmm. anyway, she'll tell us the story about what that consisted of and also some of her work now and her life. So she has bipolar and she's experienced some of these things herself. So And we'll find just random spots to add some bits of her music. Still life can do anything, but it will never fix me. I still need a doctor and a lot of therapy. No, you are not my lithium. You are not my Prozac. But when you come over, you are my July summer sunshine on my back. And that calm voice soothes me like an ice pack. Don't laugh. No, I really mean that. You change me and you motivate me. In spite of all the pills and the side effects, in spite of the panic attacks, you don't need to fight the dark inside of me. Here's Sarah. Sarah Jickling, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. We are excited. There's a lot of excitement in this Zoom room. Yes, (laughs) especially from my end. So we're both hailing from Los Angeles area, but you, Sarah, you are joining us from Vancouver? Yes, Vancouver, British Columbia. What's the temperature there right now? Um, I don't know. <laughs> that but... was an oddly specific question for me to <laughs> expect you to know the answer to. It's been I'm, really I'm... gray, and today it's sunny. Yeah, it's not a heat wave or anything, so. You have a violin behind you. Yeah, so my partner plays like six instruments, and I only play one, ah. but yeah, it's his, his violin and his trombone and his guitar. There's a oh, guitar. Oh, yeah, okay. There's electronic drum kit you can't see. 
Now I see. Now I see. Sarah is a musician, we should say. Yes. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Of Sarah Jickling and the Good Luck Band. So it's specifically Sarah Jickling and her good bad luck. And her good bad luck. Mm-hmm, because I was told as a child that I was cursed and everyone in our family has bad luck. Uh, but I learned that maybe the bad luck is bipolar disorder and maybe it's good luck after all. Oh. Maybe that's what, oh, okay. what brought me here with you guys. Yeah, anyway, that's the, <laughs> that's the thing behind that. You were told that you had bad luck, that your whole family had bad luck as a child? Yeah. So my most recent album is called The Family Curse. And it's just a thing that was always said to me. And it's interesting because I really see intergenerational trauma as the result of genetic vulnerability, Mm -hmm. which I will talk about later. But the fact that for a very long time, there was a lot of mental illness in my family, specifically bipolar disorder, but other things as well, that went untreated, undiagnosed, Mm. at the very least shoved under the rug. And so then that becomes the curse, the thing that we don't talk Mm. about. And the reason why things are going poorly, things aren't even going poorly. It's just that we are seeing things in a negative light because we are all depressed. (laughs) (laughs) This brings out the inner Bob Larson in me to say, How many generations? How many? (laughs) That's what I think of when I think of curse. But that's interesting. So was it treated kind of jokingly like the curse of the Bambino or something like that? Or was this seen as like a real serious thing that you all have to deal with? I think that it was kind of serious, but really only invoked in situations where something bad has happened. Mm. It's the curse. Mm. It's not like when we're happy, it's like, hey, remember how we're cursed? No. The car just broke down and exactly. it, wasn't, it wasn't the starter. It was our curse. Yeah. And so, for example, yeah, I live in Vancouver and my father would always say the rain follows us wherever we go. So I thought the reason that it rained so much in Vancouver was because we lived there. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my gosh. Sorry, Fun. locals. Yeah. Now, now I'm just curious. You mentioned you play one instrument. Which instrument do you play? I play the piano. And I'm a singer. So I play two. One yeah. is my mm-hmm. voice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I've heard you sing. Yeah. You're a fantastic singer. Oh, thank yes. you so much. Because you, you, you have made a couple of great albums that Ross and I both have on our phones that are partly about mental health awareness. Is that an accurate summation or is that a flattening summation? No, I think that that's pretty accurate because I did record albums under a different name before, but Mm. once I decided Mm. to go by Sarah Jickling and her good bad luck, that was a choice to be more open. Also, I accepted it for myself, accepted my Mm. diagnoses and my situation. And then I really was like, I'm going to be a musician and a mental health advocate Like, they're intrinsically linked. It's not like Mm. I'm going to do one and then the other. And I really found that, like, people connected my musical ability to my bipolar disorder before I did. Because Mm. there's a huge thing in the world where it's like, oh, you don't have a mental illness. You're just very creative and creative people Mm -hmm. this creative spirit inside of you sometimes does scary things but you got to keep rolling with it and that's how you're writing songs and that's why you're a good musician Mm. so accepting treatment and remaining a musician was in one way separating myself from my Mm. bipolar disorder but also my bipolar disorder sort of became the subject of my songs. Oh, wow. When you said that, that people kind of linked it to your creativity, at first I thought of that as 
kind of a euphemism, like creativity as being a euphemism for bipolar. But then as you were describing it, I saw it differently as it's just sort of a filter for understanding what's coming to you. I've thought about this a lot because a lot of people have a lot of opinions about bipolar disorder. It's kind of like, does it exist? And and so especially artists, I think that the fact that I like ended up in this artsy community, I got led astray a lot. And I think that when people say, oh, your creative energy is what your doctors say is bipolar disorder. It's your creative spirit. It's, ah. it's, it's pulling you this way and this way, and this is how you can write songs. Hmm. And it is true that it's easier to write songs unmedicated, but the reason why is, in my opinion, is because when you're in mania or hypomania, your internal critic is shut off. So it's very mm. easy to create when you don't have any part of you that's saying that's bad. What I created when I was in hypomania is not all perfect, mm. but it was very easy to do. Almost like I used to say it was like vomiting out a song. It was really easy. And it kind of felt in that way, like sort of magical. Whereas when you're grounded and you're not kind of going through that, creating is like, bit of a slog but you can hmm. still do it <laughs> yeah right oh that's really interesting yeah it reminds me of that advice to write drunk and edit sober yeah, um, <laughs> yeah it's like yeah you, you almost have that sort of built in that ability to just kind of get it all out which i immediately envy that ability right? and then what happens when another mood comes along like how do you look at that work that you did when you were feeling more free so Full disclosure, I don't experience hypomania anymore because oh. I'm medicated. So yeah. I let go of that. Full disclosure. Like we'd be like, disqualified, get out of here. Uh, no, <laughs> so sorry. Um, <laughs> I don't know. People get really upset about this sometimes. Mm. Um, there's okay. a lot of feelings that people have about mm. like medicating people with bipolar disorder uh -huh. in yeah. terms of how is it going to squash your creativity and mm -hmm. when I was not being treated I would look back at those songs and be like wow magic that's how I write songs mm. like I don't know how I did it and I don't really remember doing it I like mm. it but I was like okay so that magical thing I mean people would say this to me whatever's going on in your head it's working I'm like, the things that are going on in my head are really bad. Like, they're mm -hmm. dangerous to me. But so many people around me were like, you know, you're a really good songwriter. And I'm sorry that you're so depressed all the time. But I think that it, it's equally great art. Even when I was first diagnosed, my psychiatrist was like, some people find that they lose the ability to create when they're medicated. Are you okay with that? Mm -hmm. And I know that time I was like, I don't care. Like, take it all away from me. I don't care. I just need to not feel like this, especially because I have bipolar disorder type 2. So I spend a lot more time in, like, in depression than in mm. hypomania. Mm -hmm. And so I was like, it's not worth it. It's not worth it to be a musician. I, I don't care. I mean, really, the thing that I just really want to push to everyone is you can still be a musician or an artist mm. once you're going through treatment and your creativity is not your mental illness like I didn't have bipolar disorder when I was seven but I still like wrote poetry and you know like so I think learning that those things are separated was really difficult for me I definitely didn't write for a couple of years after because it is harder but now that I figured out how to do it I really just want to push everyone to 
to stop telling artists it's okay to struggle because you're making good art. Mm. Mm-hmm. I feel like a common thread through your songs, through your social media posts are about getting rid of those outside judgments on what's healthy and what's right and what you should feel bad about and what you shouldn't. That's what I always really, one of the things that I always really enjoy about your output. Thank you. I mean, so you guys helped me with that because when I started listening, I have a really close friend who was Mormon. So I was definitely like interested in what that kind of religion and spirituality stuff was about. But when you brought in the sort of pseudoscience and the different ways that people sell cures, <laughs> you and Sawbones really was like max, a max, yeah. fun max fun thing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so I started to understand like, oh, wow, this is not okay. And like, I'm not going to cure myself with any of these things. And there is no better. And my first album mm-hmm. was called When I Get Better. And there is no better. There's no cure. This is just life. And when people want to say, oh, but if you stopped eating sugar, you wouldn't experience this. Mm -hmm. I mean, no, incorrect. Like, leave me alone. (laughs) I'm going to eat this candy bar. I like it. That was one of your recent posts. You were talking about carbohydrate shaming and saying, Mm -hmm. hey, we need these things. (laughs) They power us. To live. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. When people say, oh, I'm addicted to food. It's like, yes. Because if you didn't eat it, you would die. <laughs> like, it, it is, there's a lot going on there, but a lot of people putting this mental illness is happening because you didn't do this. You are not eating right. You're not mm-hmm. praying right. You're not whatever. Mm-hmm. And then I'm really trying to say, nope, it's going to happen no matter what. You can do those things if it makes you feel better. But I mean, unless that person's like on the cutting edge of research <laughs> somehow. Unless they, like, unless they are. Yeah. Like yeah, I, yeah. If, I think drinking water is really important. You know, like this is the thing. I'm really excited about the future because I feel like in terms of research, we haven't really learned enough about the brain, especially because we spent so much of our history just kind of shutting people who are mentally ill in like buildings mm-hmm. and then not caring about them. Mm-hmm. Now that we are trying to help people, like one of my very good friends when I was going through all this different medication and stuff, she's like, you're in the dark ages of medication and people are going to look back at you and be like, wow, I can't believe you had to go through all those different pills and try all those different Mm. side effects. Mm -hmm. Because like in the future, maybe people will have discovered things that work better. So I'm so open to that. But if you're selling me your how to quit sugar in eight days book. (laughs) Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. Though you're leading me to wonder, would you describe psychiatry as an industry of death? (laughs) Um, Scientology (laughs) call back, everybody. (laughs) Yes. I, oh my gosh. (laughs) I didn't expect it. Okay, so also, as far as the future being optimistic and people understanding more, you were going, this is how we ended up having this conversation, is that you told me on Twitter that you had been going to schools in the past to educate kids about psychiatric health. Yes, specifically psychosis. You said in the episode, in one of the most recent episodes, like, oh, I wish that people would go around and like educate people about this in high school. I think it was Yeah, about we were talking the, about like uh, sleep sleep paralysis, hypnagogia, sleep paralysis right. and mm-hmm. and like hearing voices. Yeah, hearing voices and like something that really stands out to me is like yeah, like Kimberly Meredith getting in the 
car mm-hmm. crash and then experiencing these messages like I was like oh I did that before the pandemic that was my job we were called reach out psychosis and we would travel around British Columbia going to high schools and educating on what to look out for in terms of psychosis and early psychosis intervention. And I played music as well. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. It's amazing. I wish I had that at my school growing up. Yeah, this should be everywhere. Tell us more about this group. How big of a thing was this? So we had a whole band and I believe it had been going on for 10 years. I jumped in maybe like four or five years in and felt like a real like an amazing opportunity because I had started getting treatment, but I couldn't work a full-time job. And another musician, because it was always a music program, found me and was like, hey, you're starting to talk about mental health. Like, do you want to replace me in this band? So I joined on to the team and I was the person with lived experience and also the musician. And at some point, I was the tap dancer. I don't know. We're trying to entertain kids. So (laughs) there was like, there's a lot of things happening. But we would go to, I don't know, like 100 schools a year. And we would tour around British Columbia, which is not a easy thing to do. So like many, many, like many hour drives to get to maybe over a Saturday and a Sunday driving straight to get to stop number one on our tour. Oh, geez. Mm. Yeah, because it's really big. There's a lot of really isolated communities. So I felt really strongly about especially reaching the isolated communities. Because they need it most. They need it. And they don't have, honestly, it got really sad because a lot of them just didn't have any resources. So I'm like, I'm here to tell you about this. And and my the sound person used to always be like, Sarah, you can't bring the kids home. (laughs) But I want to. (laughs) So there's a lot of, I think, First Nations tribes up in northern British Columbia. Did you get to go to some of those communities? Yes, we did. Cool. Yeah. And I was really excited because right before the pandemic, we were going to go do some flying tours to some really remote islands mm. from like Haida Gwaii and like I was so excited but working with the First Nations bands has been really interesting and people have been really lovely and there's a lot of mental health stuff that's happening like within the native community where it's like they want to be available for anybody who needs it and like connections that they are creating within their own communities and then we would kind of come in and like I just was like I'm just going to share my story and say these facts but like you know take it or leave it because you have your own experience but I did get to go to some pretty cool places and at one point, like the presentation is supposed to be for children. And at one point they were like, oh, hey, so you're going to be performing to the group of elders. <laughs> like, oh, oh, whoa. OK. I was just going to ask you, like, what's the age range we're talking about? Yeah. So I have. So like eight to 80. Basically, it was supposed to be for grade eight to 12, which is like 13 to 18. Okay. That's a good um, target. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, but I have been known to improvise an entire performance. <laughs> Just be like, okay, uh, somebody hands air the mic because we're not going to do the weird, like, Johnny got broken up with by his girlfriend and now he's sad and he's smoking weed. Like, you know, we're not going to do that. So, <laughs> so I, sometimes I'd have to make some stuff up. Not facts, just plans. Mm-hmm. And 
what was the reaction from the kids? Did you ever get to experience or see any breakthrough moments happen in front of you? Oh, did they get to did ask I? questions? Yes. So I think especially because I was the person who was up there sharing my personal experiences, I had like lineups of kids pretty much always after shows talking to me. And then I also made myself available with specifically on Instagram of reach out psychosis and would encourage, be like, okay, well, you can message me on here as well if you need. And so I heard some really, really, I mean, I'm not a therapist, but I basically was for the, <laughs> when I was doing that. That's tricky because you're not like a mandated reporter or anything like that. Unless, I mean, if somebody did tell me like they were going to harm themselves or others, I'd tell sure. the, camp, the, yeah. the school counselor. But I did just hear a lot of things and it made me realize how important it was. And the thing is, like, sometimes kids would be like, oh, I'm recognizing this in myself. A lot of times people would be like, I'm recognizing this in my parents, like mm. really, really common, especially after parents had car accidents. Really, really common. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Whoa. Yeah. Okay. And then they'd be hearing voices or yeah. what, so what were they reporting? One that I remember really clearly, his dad had had a, a car accident and then suddenly he knew about the end of the world. And he was going to UBC to tell the professors, he's the aunt, like, I know when the world is going to end. Oh, and like, yeah. so psychosis is symptoms. It's not a mental illness. It's symptoms. Mm -hmm. It can be symptoms of like a physical illness, like a fever, Parkinson's disease, for example. And it can also be a symptom of mental illness, specifically schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, and depression. And so when people experience this, like it can be dormant basically is, is what I mean until something happens. So you will mm -hmm. have a genetic vulnerability to it, which is mm -hmm. basically impossible to figure out because of how we haven't spoken about mental health up until kind of now. So usually I would look for history of drug or alcohol abuse or a history of suicide. That's probably your best that to find out if you have a history of mental illness in your family. And then from there, you have your environmental stressors. So like just literally stress, stress in general, and then substances. Weed is a huge one. Mm -hmm. Alcohol, like, like it doesn't have to be a hallucinogenic. Then phys physical trauma. So any of those things can happen and basically create an episode of psychosis. When you have a bunch of those different factors happening all at once, you can create an episode of psychosis. And then from there, you have to see how often it happens from there to like get diagnosed by a doctor as to what's actually going on. But mm -hmm. it could be a bunch of things. I think that it's so common and people don't really know exactly how common it is. And I guess I think for a lot of people, there's this sense that once you've had one of these episodes, you've sort of passed through a veil and now you're sort of in a different category of person. Mm. I, I really feel like that's sort of an underlying message of the way people talk about this when it's actually just like, these aren't other people. It's not like other people <laughs> get psychosis. It's like, this is a thing the human brain does. And we don't really know how to figure out who it might happen to. And it might happen to every single one of us. And let's just actually know what it looks like. 
Mm-hmm. And I think the statistic that we said in the program is that it's six times more common than type 1 diabetes. So it Whoa. is three, 3% of the population will experience psychosis. That's, it's in my, it's in my script. So I can I can send you that. If you need. This is this is good. We want to hear the script. Yeah, yeah. I'm gonna try not to like accidentally start talking to you like your teenagers. Um, but yeah, you're like copyright 2014. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like I said, like people will experience it when having a fever, and I feel like that's mm-hmm. less stigmatized you're like oh I had such Mm. a high fever I was seeing things like or even like having drug-induced psychosis especially if it continues like it seems to continue after you are no longer high but still like experiencing like psychosis while on drugs like that counts (laughs) that Mm. counts Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm not sure in terms of like the statistics but I just know that So every time your brain experiences psychosis, it could be doing damage to your brain, especially if you're young. The reason why we went to teenagers is because if it's happening when you're young, it's way easier to like prevent from happening again. And then Mm -hmm. also Mm -hmm. because most people start experiencing like the symptoms of schizophrenia or bipolar disorder in your late teens and early 20s. It's a disorder with such high denialism within its own population as well. Like, I think it's 60% of people with schizophrenia don't believe they have it. Yes. Yeah, Mm. that's huge. It's a huge thing. Yeah. So I can imagine if you have a child, you're much more likely to, you know, be able to make that life different. Absolutely. And I also used to go around with the BC Schizophrenia Society and talk to universities. And uh, I would go around as the person with lived experience. And then there was a a woman who went around. She was a mother of someone with schizophrenia. um, And we would talk about these kinds of things. And yeah, the sort of painfulness of how common it is for people with schizophrenia to not believe in schizophrenia, especially that they don't have it, can be really, really tough on the people who are around them. Mm-hmm. Again, I just hope that we can figure more things out. I <laughs> I think of that stigma coming largely from, you know, people being willing to admit when their finger gets sprained or, you know, when they've got a, a rash on their side. But if it's something involving the brain that feels like it's especially saying something about ourselves. How much of it is that? Are there other factors? I mean, yeah, it's huge that people think that, well, what's the difference between my personality and where does the mental Mm -hmm. illness start and I stop? Um, Mm -hmm. That kind of thing. People think about that all the time. Also, it does not help that a bunch of people don't believe in these mental illnesses. Mm -hmm. And therefore, like, Mm -hmm. especially if you are prone to Paranoid thinking, for example, is one of the one of the psychosis symptoms. Mm. It's quite easy to be convinced that instead of experiencing psychosis, you're experiencing like uh, the government's trying to make you buy the medication and or whatever. So th- I think that really doesn't help the fact that there's so many conspiracy theories about it. I'm thinking also of religious explanations. You know, speaking of Bob Larson, and even my own childhood, I think you would wonder, well, is there a spiritual battle being waged here? Are there demonic forces? Absolutely. And I had a very close friend who is very Christian who brought that up, was like, well, Jesus wouldn't have let you be born with this, so it's clearly Satan. I, Mm. In fact, I even had a therapist tell me that as well who was christian who happened to be christian 
Interesting, because that's kind of a logical process, yeah. saying, okay, well, I know this about God. I know this about Jesus. He's a nice guy. Yeah. He wouldn't make me like this. That was a logical process that got them there. It was just kind of based on a maybe a flawed premise. There's so many things. Sometimes in religions, it's viewed as a bad thing, like Satan. Sometimes in religions, it's viewed as a good thing, like, oh, you're a shaman or you're a prophet mm. as well. Right. Mm-hmm. And that I was really it. hard hard thing to navigate actually when we were doing education because a lot of people are like no that's part of our religious beliefs that these people are have connections and I do have a friend who their sibling was experiencing psychosis and they were Catholic and so for example their sibling was speaking for God it's pretty hard to convince parents like this is not what it's like to speak to God you can speak to God but it's not this or, you know, oh, right. yeah, like you or if you're a shaman, mm. like there's being connected to the spirits and then there's this and like how to tell the difference between that. You s- see that within the Christian church debates over whether speaking in tongues is truly, you know, a sign of the spirit or if it's something, you know, different or pernicious. And how literally are you supposed to be hearing God in your head? You right. know, yeah. like if you hear the voice of God and you just say, he told me that Drew was the man I was supposed to marry, we go, oh, that's lovely. But if the same voice, you know, tells me to kill my kid, you know, that's the difference there. But we recognize one as a real problem. Yeah, and that's another thing that I like to bring up. So psychosis is basically delusions. So a very strongly held belief that can easily be proven wrong. Paranoia, so irrational fears and suspicions. And then hallucinations. Hallucinations can be auditory, visual, tactile. And I think we have an idea that psychosis is really always scary. Like, oh, I'm hearing demons or Mm. I'm, you know, seeing Mm -hmm. really scary things or whatever it is. But actually, a lot of the time it's kind of mundane. It can really vary. Some people like Mm -hmm. their hallucinations. Like some people feel good about their delusions, you know. And so it's quite delicate. Mm. It's just really tricky because it's their reality. That is their reality. It will feel exactly the same. As you're describing these factors, my head's kind of racing through religious history because I think we often do this when we look at religions and especially at the founders. These are extraordinary individuals for whatever reason, for their charisma, for their visions, whatever it is they saw or experienced, you know, from Moses to Hildegard of Bingen to William Blake to L. Ron Hubbard. And I can't help but feel like those quirks of perception and also things like mushrooms, they play a role. They might be necessary, but not sufficient conditions for us to have the variety of religion that we experience. How do you look at all of that? Because it's so hard to diagnose, especially historically. Obviously, like, it's really tough to talk to religious people about this sometimes. Some more people who are more educated in religion than me can kind of navigate it a bit more like, yeah, like how literally are you hearing God? Like God doesn't speak like it's somebody else talking to you. Like you hear your friend talking to you. It's more like in a whisper, Mm -hmm. in a vibe. So there's that. But I think that basically if somebody's doing something that's getting in the way of their life and harming themselves or others in any way, like it's basically that's changing their life, then that's a problem. Mm. And because we are so careful to, or I don't know, 
people in Canada are so careful to not like want to offend people mm. who have mm-hmm. religious beliefs. Sometimes mm-hmm. we'll step off there and we'll be like, okay, no, that, that your thing is different. So it can get really controversial. I think that, you know, going back, how much was exaggerated? And for example, if Jesus said all of the things that he said exactly how he said in the book, I would be like, hmm, yeah, we got to look at that guy. But like, we don't know about that. We don't know. But when you, (laughs) when you, when you think about people in terms of the types of beliefs that they have and what they're saying right now to you, like, I think Mm -hmm. the difference would be like, for example, that guy's dad and how he went to UBC to tell people that he knew that the world was ending. Like, he believed it so much so that he wasn't going to work anymore. Like, he very suddenly Mm -hmm. just stopped everything he was doing and he was spending all of his time just trying to figure this out and trying to contact officials and, like, Wow, he's really like doing it right. Like right? he's like, yeah. I'm gonna go to the university. I'm gonna, <laughs> I'm gonna yeah. call the government. Like these are all the right moves. All this due diligence. Exactly. Yeah. Whereas I imagine like somebody who is just kind of looking into, say, conspiracy theories, but it's, it's coming from the internet, for mm. example, instead of their own brain. They're mm. not gonna go and like go to the university and tell people. They're not gonna take oh, all this. That's big, a really good point. Yeah. Jumps. Yeah. And another thing is that so one of my friends has a sibling who experiences psychosis, particularly delusions, and he said watching his brother go through psychosis was what made him lose his faith because he saw how much his brother believed in everything that was happening to him. And so specifically, he was Mormon. So what's to say that this didn't happen to Joseph Smith? That's kind of the flip side of that example you were giving earlier of someone said, well, couldn't be this because I know Jesus Mm -hmm. uh, has set the world up in such a way. It sounds like that person saw kind of evidence that made them take that same logic and say, okay, well, we have to nullify that assumption about God. Exactly. And I really think it's like depends on how people look at religion because he wanted to dig more and more and more into the religion to answer his questions. Like, oh, this Mm -hmm. is kind of adding to my already sort of doubt that's happening. But for example, for my other friend, Mm. when I tell her this is happening, she's not like, wow, anybody could be hearing this. She's like, well, that's clearly Satan. So Mm. she wasn't at that time questioning anything. And so that's what I guess what the church had kind of already prepared for her. But it really depends on where people are, I think. You're reminding me, have either of you read the memoir by Daniel Paul Schreiber, My Nervous Illness? Mm-mm. Memoirs of My Nervous Illness. It's a very deep cut. It's like the 1800s. But it's a, it's a guy who was a respected politician in the UK or government person, judge, maybe a judge in the UK. Anyway, he went through what he called his first nervous illness. It seems like it was a psychotic break, some kind. And then a second illness followed, but it took like five or 10 years before it happened again. And so Hmm. he just kept going back to work at his old job and be fine again and then fall back into this illness. But by the time he had his third, he started just believing the psychotic episodes so much more strongly that he couldn't get out of it. And he started just being more and more convinced that God was talking to him specifically and taking over his nerves specifically and Mm. sending birds to fly and talk at him. And so he's writing this book 
in this voice of a judge. It's like this very smart person laying out an argument for why I know I sound not well right now, but actually I have just been uniquely chosen for this role. And let me try. I know what you're thinking. I know what you're thinking. You think it's hallucinations. Let me step by step prove to you that that's not the case. And then, of course, it's not persuasive, but <laughs> but everything else surrounding it is so coherent that it's like it's really destabilizing to read. The thing is, like, if any of us experienced this, say, for the first time, we'd be like, unless it was something really weird, like, it'd be like, there's a dog right there. Like, I yeah, think, yeah. yeah, it's like, well, why would I? Of course, yes. And mm. I, any sort of experiences that I had with psychosis was usually like, do you guys like that famous person is right there? Hmm. Like, it's like, but we all see this. No. And it really strange, like not scary in my uh-huh. brain, but I can imagine that it would get scary. And well, just the discordance of, you know, being so used to your senses, giving you accurate information and mm-hmm. then you being able to agree with everyone around you that that is veridical. And now suddenly people are checking you and saying, well, actually, no. Yeah, that's rough. Psychosis affects your ability to tell what is reality and what isn't. And Mm. so then you can get into really weird spaces where you're like, what is reality? But Right, um, right. Yeah, yeah, right. So it's really strange because we're all just experiencing this world because of our brains. And sometimes our brains are doing weird things. Right. And Yeah. yeah, all of it is shortcuts to begin with. You know, there's a very small part of our visual field that has high resolution and the rest around it. All the peripheral vision is really just kind of this illusion. Reality is on some level just an agreement. But I do want to know when I've broken the agreement with everyone else. Right. Because then like science and evidence and everything else won't be there to save me, even though I might see everything totally differently. Psst. Hey, Carrie. Hey, what's up, Ross? <laughs> what's up, Ross? I mean, I suppose we could include Sarah in this, but I don't know. I just, I wanted to talk to you about you something really about important. Products and services. Oh, how, how did you know? You've done this a number of times. Like, where we have a guest, we oh. have them in the room, oh. and then you, like, stop them. You turn to me, you whisper as if they can't hear us. She can hear us. And then you. I've done this before. Always because you want to talk about products and services. Well, I guess what I had in mind is a service and a product. Yeah. All right. Well, I was just wanted to get your thoughts on websites, but I'm feeling very predictable now. Oh well, okay. If you want to talk about websites, we can. I'm kind of in the mood. Okay. Yeah, because okay. Hold on, Sarah. It's funny that you do because I'm actually, I'm really good friends with this website called Squarespace. Squarespace. Yeah. Yes, you've told me about that before. Yeah, Squarespace was asking me to talk to you about them today. And I was like, I didn't want to be like, you know, too weird about it. But I, think this like, is I think Squarespace is as good a time as any. Yeah. Well, yeah. so Squarespace is a place where I can make a website. Yeah. On a website. I don't have to download any extra software. Yeah. So like as long as you have a web browser, if you want to make a website, you can go to Squarespace and you'll be like, smash, smash, I want to make a website. So I can like get my domain name right there. Yeah, totally. And I can start building my site Mm -hmm. with templates Mm -hmm. that are good looking templates. Yeah. So even if you just want to put up something that's like, hey, I edit videos. Yeah, yeah. Here's my email address and make it look nice. You could slap that right up. It'll look good. That's amazing. See, I'm glad we're talking about this because I'm sure plenty of people listening have been thinking, 
oh, I've got that new project of mine I want to tell people about. Mm-hmm. I've got my business. I just need a website. This and is how you do it. This is how you do it. I mean, you and I have used Squarespace for years for our pod, our sweet, sweet pod. Yeah, it's been the home of onopodcast.com. And it could be the home of your website as well. Mm-hmm. And the cool thing is you can go and start building your site, play around with the tools, get comfortable with it before you even take the leap. Mm-hmm. So you can make sure you like it before you buy it. And everything looks good on mobile. They've yeah. already optimized that for you. You can also have scheduling tools on there. Mm-hmm. So if you're booking clients and you want to say, here, I don't want to deal with this scheduling. Here are the times I'm available. Go onto my website. It's I got tools love for that. that when people do that. Me too. That could be you. Ross could love you. If you did that. It's true, I would. So head to squarespace.com slash oh no for your free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use offer code oh no to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Okay, so should we just go back to talking to Sarah now or is there something else you wanted to? Well, you know, yeah. since you ask. Yeah, there's some other product or service that's on your mind. Yeah, I, I was hoping we could talk about Best Fiends. Oh, that game you really love. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I'll hear about your game. Well, it, look how colorful this game is. See, I have it right here in front of you. Oh, yeah. There's different. It's pretty. It, as You're showing me on your phone. As you advance, you scroll through this three-dimensional world of color and you have all of your colorful bugs that are your fiends and dare i say your friends they help you complete puzzles and you can upgrade them look how upgraded my fiends are it's very is that why they're gold depending on the color it's why their numbers are very high on the left hand Ah, side here and why i have almost all of them look i'm missing very few see the little question mark Uh oh there we go there's one i need to unlock so I have most of them. Anyways, yeah, it's a fun puzzle game. Uh, I got to say, I'm quite hooked on it. And I am currently on level 3,678. <laughs> That's so many levels. I play it while I watch. Oh, I haven't told you this yet. Yeah. Breaking Bad. You've been watching Breaking Bad. I, I always said if I got sick, I would start watching Breaking Bad. Yeah. And there I was, languid with COVID. And uh-huh. I thought, oh, I better make good on this promise. And so I am now in season four of Breaking Bad. Oh, wow. Are you enjoying it? Uh, yeah, I am. It's definitely compelling watching. And mm. you can binge like four or five episodes at once because it really leaves you on a cliffhanger. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I don't particularly like any of the characters that mm. much. Oh, interesting. Like okay. Jesse's a jerk. Mm, okay. Selfish, haughty jerk. Okay. Yeah, anyways, like, you know, so it's one of those things where you're not entirely rooting for anybody, but maybe that's Mm. necessary, except I like Saul. He's a fun character. Mm, Interesting. Okay. Yeah. Hmm. Uh, So I can see why people talk about Better Call Saul being such a, you know, great spinoff series. So I'll Mm -hmm. I'll definitely watch that when I'm done. Interesting. Well, I'm eager to hear how that wraps up for you. I was saying Jesse while picturing Walter. Walter is the jerk. Jesse. Interesting. Jesse's just messed up. Mm. Yeah. Sorry. I don't know why Mm. I got that backwards in my head. Interesting. Okay. And boy, I had to wait to like season four for someone to get the Heisenberg reference. That took a while. Oh, the blimp? He calls himself Heisenberg after the physicist. Uh And no one ever mentions that. Everybody's just like, oh, you're Heisenberg. Oh, I see, I see. It's like really waiting for that shoe to drop. Oh, wow. finally did. Someone's like, oh, it's the physicist. Okay. Oh, wow. Okay. And you're saying interesting as in I'm going to learn something that might change my opinion later on? I have no idea. I don't know. Okay. It's hard to say. Who knows? Fair enough. I'd love to just hear how that pans out. (laughs) I just don't know. So far into the series. But yeah, maybe it'll surprise me. Very interesting. Yeah. Who knows? Hard to know. Anyways, Best Fiend. 
scenes. Yeah, you play that while you watch Breaking Bad. Yeah, and many other things. It doesn't distract from your language processing. You can watch a movie or a Have TV a conversation. show. Yeah, while you're while you're playing Best Fiends. Yeah, all kinds of things to collect and upgrade, and it's fun, compelling playing, and you're solving puzzles. I don't think we even said the characters are cute little bugs. Yeah, they're cute little bugs, and then they're slugs. You got to take them out, but. Don't worry, mm. you're just, you know, like pushing him to the side of the screen. You never see him die. Okay, good, Hugh. You know, it is actually free to download also. That's right, and there's over 100 million downloads. So That's a lot of downloads. This game has been downloaded many times. You could be one of those. Mm-hmm, you could be one of more. So listen, you've earned your fun time. Go to the App Store or Google Play to download Best Fiends for free. Plus, earn even more with $5 worth of in-game rewards when you reach level 5. That's friends without the R. Best fiends. Okay, do you want to go back to talking to Sarah? Or? Yeah. Okay. So going back to, say, the classroom, one of my questions was, what do you then tell the students who now maybe recognize something in their families or in themselves? What is the next step for them? Who do they reach out to? So... There is something, at least where I am, called EPI, Early Psychosis Intervention. That's an actual place where you can send somebody. But, of course, like, it's not accessible. Like, if you're in, like, Fort St. John's, like, 15 hours away from a hospital or whatever. So that's when things get depressing. Because <laughs> yeah. you probably want somebody to go on an antipsychotic. I'm on an antipsychotic right now, but mm. the first time I went on one, it was given to me by a family doctor who said, hey, you have bipolar disorder. Catherine Zeta-Jones has it. It's the same thing. Here <laughs> is some antipsychotics. And I took them, and I was like, this is the worst thing ever, and... They never went back to my family doctor. Anyone diagnosed me with bipolar disorder after that, I was like, no, you're wrong. And I'm just going to go to another doctor. Mm -hmm. So the medication is really tricky. And like, ideally, you need to find a good doctor that is a fit for you, who can then do trial and error mm -hmm. until you are no longer experiencing these kinds of things and you're in a place that's stable. And so it's really tricky, but I think the main thing that I told kids was like, first of all, reach out to somebody that you trust and just share these things because it's really hard to keep it all by yourself. There was also a free chat line for teens in BC. Definitely, mm -hmm. you know, reach out there. And then also go to the doctor with a friend who believes in you and like will stand up for you because it's really hard to like navigate your own mental health while you're in a mental health crisis. And mm -hmm. a lot of doctors yeah. are going to be like, mm, this is, yeah, they're just going to say like something really weird, like Catherine Zeta-Jones has it. And then they're just going <laughs> to hand you a medication and not tell you what's happening. Say I had a friend there at that appointment, I imagine like they could have been like, wait, what is this medication? Why is she being diagnosed with bipolar disorder? Tell me more. Is this going to oh, work? Right. Like, what's this going to do? There's a lot of questions that I was just like, oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure. I think it usually takes like a team. If you need to find like an advocate or like a volunteer person, that's okay too. But just really, I tell everybody, don't do it alone. If you're experiencing this stuff, your perception of reality and your ability to like emotionally regulate and stuff like that 
is out the window. So you making decisions and navigating through a very difficult system wherever you are, a difficult healthcare system, that's going to be a lot of work. And I don't think you can do it alone. And I think the more you get shut down and have bad experiences, the less likely you are to continue to get help. Because I know I was diagnosed so many times and I just kept saying, no, no, Mm -hmm. like Mm -hmm. stop telling me I'm crazy. My ex-boyfriend already told me that. And and it took a really long time then to basically have to hit rock bottom and be like, well, there's nothing I can do. It's this or nothing. (laughs) Yeah. So So you got to be really careful with how you frame the intervention. Yes. If somebody is experiencing hallucinations, delusions, paranoia, you don't want to say, you're wrong. I think you're experiencing Mm -hmm. delusions. You want to be like, wow, so you see that person over there. That sounds kind of scary. Like, do you want to talk about it? Definitely don't tell people that they're wrong because Mm -hmm. then you become an enemy. They're not wrong. They do see that. That is what they're experiencing. So being like a friend in that way and being like, okay, you're telling me that this is happening. That sounds scary. Like, how can I help you? That's one of the best ways to deal with somebody who's actively experiencing psychosis, but it's just really tricky. (laughs) Sarah, did you ever get to read that book, I'm Not Crazy, I Don't Need Help? No. It's by a psychiatrist whose brother had, I think it's schizophrenia, and was medicine resistant, and how he used the kind of language you're describing to encourage his brother to finally get medicated. And it was, it was quite late in life, too, so it was really uncommon. But like in his 30s or something, he finally convinced him. But he would just basically say stuff like, oh, that's interesting. I hadn't even thought of it that way. When that lady closes her blinds, you assume that she's mad that we're walking on her street. Huh, Mm. I never thought of it like that. You know, when I saw that, I just thought, oh, you know, the sun's going down. Maybe that's shining through a window. Huh, I don't know. (laughs) But he just like makes sure to get these second ways of seeing reality into his brother's world for a really long time. Mm. And then finally when, and this is another factor, but finally when enough other people had been like, dude, get medicated. Something's going on with you. His brother, who had taken this softer approach, could kind of capitalize on that and go, oh, yeah, I know. They're kind of being nags. Why do you think they want that, though? Like, what do you think is really going on there? And then could sort of softly lead him in that direction. It's a great book. Recommend. sounds really good. That's interesting. And, And it feels so parallel to what we often talk about in dealing with religious family or people you disagree with on QAnon or whatever Mm -hmm. it may be, that you prioritize the friendship and keep those lines of communication open and never get to that point of brinkmanship where you just have to dissolve the connection. I'll add the proviso there. Of course, that's as long as all of that interaction is within your own boundaries and your own sanity, you know, prioritize that first. If you can't have that person in your life, then, you know, best not for you to struggle. You won't be helpful to someone else if you can't help yourself first. And I had, I think I did have some people who were not able to take care of themselves, like maybe sort of try to help me. And then it usually ended up with like some sort of disaster. So I would always prefer that people like make sure that they are grounded and they have the help. Like if anyone in your life is experiencing this stuff, I also recommend that you see it like a therapist or something like that. I know it's very expensive and there's 
things that come in the way of like all of this stuff. But in a perfect world, you get help even if you're dealing with someone who's experiencing this stuff because it can be really draining and scary. And also if the hallucinations and stuff aren't scary, some people be like, well, we should just like allow that person to experience that, which maybe, but also it is important to remember that every time your brain experiences psychosis, it can be damaged. Maybe that's why things get worse, but it's like, it is not good for your brain. Yeah. In what way does it get damaged? I don't know because I am not a doctor. <laughs> Fair but enough. That enough. is something that I tell because <laughs> like, okay, it's in the script. It's in um, the script. No, I, I can totally believe that it is. I, I guess what I'm assuming that means, and I just wondered if I was right, is um that certain pathways are getting so lit up there that it's going to be really hard to break them in the future. And so you're going to be more stuck in a pattern where you're really prone to psychosis. That would be my guess. Maybe even hardware changes where early intervention could help mitigate that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah, this is probably a bad example, but I immediately think of like Miracle on 34th Street, you know, the guy who thinks he's Chris Kringle and the whole plot kind of revolves around like, well, how harmful is that? Harvey, for that matter. I don't know. Mm. I'm thinking of old films, mm-hmm. but, you know, Two uh, good ones. it's an interesting point that you make that even when it seems beneficial, not harmful to themselves or anybody else, still it's worthy of attention because there are changes happening kind of under the surface. Yeah, and so all everything in the script has like a citation, so I can send that to you. But um, <laughs> Good, you send that after this. <laughs> <laughs> but um, another thing that I like to mention also, like for example, say people really thought, well, it sounds like you're having like hypomania. It's great because you're a musician and you need that. That's awesome. So if somebody is experiencing psychosis, they could be experiencing bipolar disorder and then there is two parts to bipolar disorder. I mean, it can be fatal. Bipolar disorder can be fatal. In fact, as a way to like dispel the myth of people with psychosis being really violent, we like to mention to the kids that people with psychosis are far more likely to hurt themselves. And Mm -hmm. a lot of them will attempt or complete suicide. So it's dangerous for the person, even if it doesn't look scary. And... It's unpredictable, I guess. Well, let's talk a little about sleep paralysis, because you also mentioned teaching the kids about that. So yeah, yeah, that how does that look? And I'm picturing kind of a hodgepodge of you guys singing and dancing and stopping and talking. Is that am I picturing the right thing? Yeah. So sleep paralysis, not in the script, but I just know about it. And a lot of people will like raise their hands when we be like, what's psychosis? Mm. Like, what, what do you think this is? And and hallucinations and kids will ask about sleep paralysis a lot. So that's meaning that they've already experienced it at a young Mm -hmm. age. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. I don't know why, but in my mind, I was picturing it as something that happened to older people. That's interesting. Oh, no, it's more common in it's more common in kids. Wow. Okay. So a lot of times, like, because I listen to podcasts like this and I, I, you know, I, I have other sort of knowledge about things that can happen with your brain. People will come up to me after and maybe they will be talking about something to do with psychosis, but basically anything sort of confusing, people are like, well, this could be psychosis. Mm-hmm. If you're experiencing something like that, but it's in between waking and sleeping, then that's something else. And it's really common though. And I don't think enough people know about it. It wasn't officially in the script though. It was really Mm. more like me being like, well, have you thought about this? But such a helpful thing to introduce early as an idea. And we talked about that on the podcast and we got even more confirmation of that from people who wrote us in and were able to say, 
I experienced you know, sleep paralysis and it was still absurdly frightening. But because I knew that it was a thing that people experience and I was experiencing at that moment, I had enough of that voice in my head that I could get through it. And then afterwards, it was just an interesting experience. And I think what you're describing with what you're doing with all of these kids is so important just because at least now someone has that little kernel to lock onto like, oh, I've heard about this already. Yes, absolutely. And so we had schools tell us like, oh, six months after you came, like we were able to get this kid to hospital because their friends recognized what was happening for example Whoa! yeah so, oh congratulations that's yeah. amazing yeah, that's yeah a victory so right yeah there. so we were having a lot of good feedback in terms of that of like actually seeing after we would show up a bunch of kids would go to the counselor and be like what about this what about this and so just having it in people's heads as a thing that can happen and a thing to look out for there's no yeah. harm i think in like people being like oh, maybe this sleep paralysis is psychosis and just checking it out and finding out. Yeah, it's so much better to just be curious and to know that your brain can do all of this than, yeah, to not talk about it because it's so indistinguishable from reality. Just assume that this is just a thing that's happening to you and only you and then maybe it's magic or whatever. I'm, yeah, or you got uh, abducted by aliens or, yeah. Yeah, right. mm -hmm. yeah whatever the culturally available explanation is. Yes. If you make a culturally available explanation that these things happen and it's natural and it's okay, talk to somebody about it. So powerful. Yeah, I'm adding this to my short list of Ross's wish list of, you know, additional educational units he wishes all students had. So like, <laughs> you know, like from the perspective of this podcast, I always really want every student to have an experience of world religion. Because I think once you start to do that comparative yeah. shopping of religions, oh, that's interesting. They believe this. Oh, that's similar to this, but different in this way. I think this is, you know, another, I was going to say equally important. I don't know how to weigh those two, but also <laughs> incredibly important. So when we were telling kids, oh, this, this is something that happens, and then somebody like me can come up and be like, and it happened to me, and I'm right here in front of you. I'm not Catherine Zeta Jones. Yeah, I'm a, like, I'm a real person. Who, uh, who is, I'm like the lady from Zorro? What? <laughs> so the person who inspired me to get help was Maria Bamford. And oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I'd been diagnosed with bipolar disorder like four times, but I was like, no, you're wrong. I'm not getting help. I'm not doing this. I tried that one medication from that one doctor and it sucked. Yep. And so when I listened to an interview with Marie Bamford where she talked about getting help, it, all of her specials when she says like bipolar on stage and it's like, but she's not crazy. She's, it's her. She's just her. Uh, that was really, really life changing. And so I like that more and more people are speaking out about their own experiences because if you have somebody that you respect who's going through this, yeah. it's so much easier to be like, oh, maybe it could be happening to me. Like, it's not just happening to crazy people, whatever that means, crazy. But, like, that's one of the things that I would always hope is just, like, that more and more people are sharing it because Maria Bamford is a very specific person and I couldn't, like, <laughs> I really wanted to, like, hand out her, like, special at these high schools, but I'm also, like, I... They may, they may not immediately respect Maria Bamford <laughs> exactly. as much as they should. But, I mean, it speaks to the power of representation. You know, you should have sports mm -hmm. stars who speak about that. You should have musicians, movie stars, writers. Mm -hmm. I think that would be really helpful. In your journey to accepting your diagnosis, 
there had to be a lot of nonsense coming your way, trying to steal your attention until you have some other diagnosis with some other strange treatment. What were some of the common ones you got? Yes. So I had a lot of people tell me about Ayurvedic medicine and that my doshas were off uh, specifically that one is I don't know if maybe it's just because I'm in Vancouver or something but people really felt like that fit in on top of what I was experiencing a big thing was that some people were like well you're on birth control and birth control is made by the government to make you sick and so (gasps) therefore you should go off of birth control and off of all of your medication and then you will be fixed. So the the problem in the first place. I don't like birth control for some other reason B, but I'm going to apply it in this situation to talk you out of it. For that, my very closest friend, I ended up having to stop talking to her because that's what she believed about me and she didn't believe in bipolar disorder and it was really hard. My sense is that, that those talking points came out of like fundamentalist religion? Weirdly, no. Okay. <laughs> she, it, it did come out of an old man, but <laughs> yeah, no, it just her dad, but like <laughs> not a religious one. <laughs> okay. It seems like that comes from the people who protest outside the abortion clinics. Yeah. But that this that is, got carried. <laughs> <laughs> this, is, this one is weirdly like more like evolutionary, like women are meant to have babies oh, and be okay. happy. Yeah. And this is our evolutionary. You're messing with nature. You're messing with nature. Exactly. That's where that one came from. Wow. But that one I got in different forms like the government has you're sick because of i think also like sugar like and different eating things which then therefore gave me eating disorders but like oh you this is because you eat this food or like have this gmo diet if you just Mm. got rid of all the gmos then you wouldn't have these experiences anymore and especially because my hypomania generally so hypomania is like mania light it just honestly Mm -hmm. looks like to a lot of people like someone's doing really well I'm like, I have so many ideas. Like, if you're not my best friend and and you're not, like, receiving phone calls being like, I'm the next J.K. Rowling, and then the next day, like, I'm going to make this amazing TV show, and, like, you're not Mm. seeing how intense it is. You're just kind of seeing, like, snippets. Mm. Then it doesn't seem like a big problem, and then they just see depression and anxiety, and then you're just going to get, like, more general things, especially because it's not all the time. So it's like, oh, yeah, sometimes you feel depressed, uh, check out like what's going on with your cycle or with your diet. And mm. it seems like maybe if there we, we could fix some things. And then there also supplements was a big one too. People saying like, oh, bipolar disorder is actually a, an imbalance of vitamins. And I remember watching a documentary about it and buying really, really expensive supplements from a guy who was He's not allowed in Canada. That means I mean, was one of them lithium? No, unfortunately. Okay, okay. (laughs) Because there are lithium supplements, so that seems possible. No. He's not allowed in Canada, so. Yeah, it's like, that's like, you know, because the government doesn't want you to get better. Oh, of course. Rather than the government's trying to protect you from quacks. (laughs) For me, those were like the main ones, but especially because I wasn't surrounded by a lot of religious people and I was surrounded by a lot of musicians. Uh, So it's kind of more like that's how 
they see things. And I live in yeah. Vancouver, so there's a lot of hippies and stuff. You mentioned earlier that people would insinuate that you were crazy and you'd say, I don't want to hear that. My boyfriend already told me that I was mm-hmm. crazy. I noticed that in your music, one of the things that you're really vulnerable about and willing to talk about is past relationships and kind of healing from those scars. Can you kind of compare and contrast sort of how these dynamics play out in relationships versus other social relationships? So I think that, say, if you dating somebody who has undiagnosed mental illness, it's not going to go well, probably. (laughs) You know, often when I would get out of relationships, people would say, you're crazy. But that's also kind of sometimes the thing that men say to women. So that's Mm -hmm. tricky. And then I would be like, well, I have so many strong emotions about this, but that's a lot to do with the mental illness and also to do with like personality disorder traits as well. Like I went to DBT to deal with that. I highly recommend dialectical behavioral therapy if you have access to it. So I think that for me, a lot of like, I was really connected to anyone who was going to be nice to me. And almost like all of the songwriting about the relationships is kind of like, almost like a symptom of (laughs) borderline personality disorder. Not that I've Hmm. been fully diagnosed with that, but see, these things are so strange. People are like, I could give you the diagnosis. It would be helpful. So anyways. But big overlap with uh, bipolar, though. Yes, exactly. So I, Mm -hmm. I don't know what is up. But I think that if you come from a family that is not like super understanding about this stuff, and then you go into a relationship with somebody who's who doesn't understand this stuff, Mm. you are going to keep getting into patterns probably that were shown to you as a child because very often, very often, not always, if you have a mental illness like one of your parents probably does too and it might be untreated or an uncle or an aunt or a grandfather or whatever. And so you might see this as normal In fact, that's something that I definitely did see as normal. I'm like, everybody wants to die, right? Like, this Mm. is normal because this is what I see already. Everybody is this dramatic and everybody is this obsessed with things. And so if you're surrounded by people who have the mental illness and others who maybe grew up with people with mental illness and are used to, like, taking care of those people, then you continue a pattern. And I have a song in my most recent album that is called Better. I appreciate the good things that I got, but we both know this is not where it should stop. I know very well when you grew up it was hell, but you did your best and what you messed up. I will try so hard to do it better, 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 better. Better cause of you I think I know what I can do to make it better, better. about how just making little changes per generation is all we can do because it's so complex. And like, I think that like romantic relationships and then friendships and all that stuff, it's all affected. You want to treat everybody with respect and treat yourself with respect, but that's a hard thing to do. We're nodding our heads over here. You can't hear We're nodding our heads. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) It strikes me, Sarah, as you're talking that like it feels like a very Canadian story to me. And I think that really means that I'm leading a very American life. But I think 
based on the reporting I've done in the last year, I think that if this whole story had happened to you in the United States, you'd be really deep in like some pretty questionable trauma therapy. I think that's where you would have been. That's where that river would have eventually pulled you out. Okay, so on my journey, I did end up in some trauma things. And so, for example, Mm. the first psychiatrist that I ever saw, as soon as he heard about my childhood, he was like, oh, no, you don't have bipolar disorder. I'm going to put you in a group for abused women and like blamed everything on my trauma. And so I was Mm. like, oh, wow. Okay, well, I don't even at this point recognize that I've been abused or anything. So I'm not going to come back to you, the psychiatrist. And that's just happened to be what the first psychiatrist said, but absolutely spend a lot of time like in weird offices with like crystals in my bra being like, I need to create an energy light so that like, I don't repeat my father wound. I don't know, like that Mm -hmm. definitely happened a lot. And like, that was a huge one was people were like, well, you just had a really bad childhood. So this is what's happening. Yeah, yeah. Now that that's no factor or anything. But yeah, in the US, like right now, it seems like that's just sort of our way of dealing with anything. It's like this person clearly needs trauma treatment. Uh." Yeah. And I think like, also, like you said, it is very Canadian because I was like able to go to the doctor for free. So I just kept yeah. going to different doctors and different doctors. And if that doctor gave me the wrong answer, I went to a different one. And then eventually I was able to go to the hospital for free. And like sometimes what I tell people to do in Canada, like so the the bad thing about I guess about the system is that we have really long wait lists. For example, I've been on a wait list for two years to try and get a diagnosis for ADHD. Mm. That's what it's like here. But if you need it immediately, you can get the help. And so Mm. if you do go to the hospital and say like, I'm in the emergency room and I need this, I need to see a psychiatrist, you will be able to bypass the line. Yeah. And that's free. And then you can be put in the system and once you're in the system like everything is free so that's huge and like I remember talking to a girl in the states about her experiences and just thinking yeah like would I be I mean my medication is covered because I'm low income like yeah I don't know yeah I mean that's all true too from the patient standpoint it's like such a nightmare I'm even thinking in the actual like organizing of the care Like Mm -hmm. in Canada, you have money that goes to evidence-based medicine and like figuring out what the best care is for everyone and making that more available, you know, the less likely explanations and the less likely to work treatments, less available and less funded. It's just like the obvious thing to do. But in the United States, in the United States, instead, we're like, well, every doctor unto himself, you guys all, the clinicians all figure it out and hopefully you'll do a good job because we taught you well when you were in school 25 years ago. And then the next thing you know, you're teal swan. Yeah. Ross wasn't following what I was saying. But yes, absolutely. <laughs> yes, evidence-based treatment. I insist on it. Every time I go to a therapist, I'm like, hello, I'm here for evidence-based treatment and nothing else. <laughs> so You're like, yeah. oh, that's next door. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You keep your crystals out of my bra. Yes, please. It's not helping. Yeah, you're right. There's a lot of like definite privileges that come along with being treated in Canada for sure. Yeah, I know other countries also do things a little better than here in that regard. And 
you know, so maybe I'm just looking at this as an American rather than you're looking at it as Canadian. Isn't that interesting? (laughs) So you said that during the pandemic that these classes you were giving, that that all kind of dried up. Do you know, is there any plan for that to come back? Is there a way people can support that kind of education? We were a nonprofit funded by the Canadian government. So for a while, they held on to the idea that like, okay, maybe we can start this up again. But then uh, I think basically I have too much money to keep people on. Everyone got laid off and all of our equipment got sold and everything like just everything was taken down in fact like it's kind of hard to find evidence that it happened on the internet like you know like all my my social media stuff that i worked on uh it was gone and taken over and they kind of tried to pretend like we didn't exist because they knew we weren't super happy about how we'd been treated and Mm. so that Mm. is unfortunate but like this thing It was really well received by schools, like schools really wanted it. As far as I understand, like the woman who's doing the booking was like still gets emails being like, we want you. And it was a pretty big operation. So as somebody who lives with bipolar disorder and I consider myself someone with a disability, I can't like create the program from scratch by myself. So I don't know if anyone wants to do it with me. (laughs) Yeah, well, and now I'm sounding like one of my uncles from out of state who's like, I have an idea, Carrie, for what you should do with your life. But (laughs) it does seem like something that could be done on many different scales. You know, there's the scale you're talking about where it's like this really dense distribution in one area, British Mm -hmm. Columbia, and everybody's getting like really one-on-one one sort of interaction or you do the same kind of thing but like maybe it's more dispersed and you're sending out you know those learning materials to schools around the world yeah i mean ever since you were talking about that on that other episode i was like i should tell people about psychosis again because i know so much about it and so i was thinking of making tiktoks so yeah oh my god tiktok needs it yeah. yeah, so I was thinking of doing that. <laughs> yeah, I'd you know much who loves you be TikToks, on TikTok, and YouTube than say Teal Swan. I have an, uh, a little timer on my phone, and every day at three o'clock it says, "Go on TikTok for one minute." I hate TikTok, but I really want to participate in the world, so <laughs> I'm trying to get over the sensory overload. Mm -hmm. And participate and share my music. Right now, I mostly share stuff on Instagram and YouTube and stuff. But I am here to say that I'm going to try with TikTok. Hell yeah. Yeah. Hell yeah. She's going to try, everybody. I like it. Uh, What's your TikTok handle? Sarah Jickling. So it's quite easy to find me on the internet. Jickling rhymes with pickling and tickling, but with a J. And then if you type that into Spotify or into Instagram or into TikTok, I will come up. Nice. And people can find your albums wherever better music is sold. Yes, or streamed or given away for free. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And let's make psychosis education like sex ed or menstruation education that you get way before it happens to you. Mm. Menstruation, that's actually, that's a good model. You don't want to just suddenly be bleeding out your bottom and not know that's coming. That's fucking scary. So same it, deal. That's a good plug for the new Baymax series on Disney+. Plus. <laughs> There's a very oh, yeah. cool episode about that. Okay. I saw something yeah. about it. It's our best update since the 1946 Disney 
film, The Story of Menstruation. (laughs) Oh, yes, yes, I've seen that. It's good. (laughs) This answers the question of how people can find you online. So excellent. (laughs) Strike. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. If people want to reach out and like listen to my music, that would be amazing. Until your lungs begin to scream They cliche soothing Baseline is moving Empty words are wonderfully Coma inducing I wanna hear my heartbeat Turn up the drum machine I wanna hear myself think I wanna hear him sing I'm just looking for weirdos Who wanna hear music about being weird it's good music. It's in my rotation, so I'll be driving <laughs> around and it comes up for the whole family. Oh, my goodness. And also, Sarah, just a real quick question. Do you have any tattoos? Yes, I have a giant tattoo on my back. It says, oh, okay. I'm sure it's all true. <gasps> um, <laughs> what? I have that same tattoo, but not on my back, on my leg. We are. We have many tattoos. <laughs> Did we get it on the same day? I think I got mine later because I had to make okay. an appointment. <laughs> okay. I remember there being a couple people who were like, I hope this counts. Um, yeah. And you must have been one of them. I yep. think yes. there are four of us with that tattoo. You had to get on that Canadian wait list. But yeah, you're part of the fellowship. <laughs> yes. And also, so I, because I live in Vancouver, I'm mostly wearing my jacket all the time, but I do teach pole dancing. And so I am in my uh, most recent pole dancing class someone was like you have an honor ross and carrie tattoo <gasps> <gasps> no! and i was like hello my new best friend amazing <laughs> oh yeah. i hope they're listening to this i assume they will be listening to this yeah i hope so andrea you're an excellent student <laughs> <laughs> andrea i love you on the pole you are a woman of many talents that's amazing <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I'll just point out for people in the U.S. looking for, you know, early psychosis intervention on the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Well, there's a specific website, SAMHSA, S-A-M-H-S-A, Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration. So that's SAMHSA.gov. So if you go there, you can find treatments for a variety of different early indicators. So that's a good resource Uh, And you can look for testing in your state. Hell yeah. And don't give up if the first doctor sucks. Mm. That's Mm -hmm. great advice. Well, thank you so much, Sarah. This has been a delight just to get to talk to you. We've, you know, conversed a little bit online. But yeah, uh, just so you know, every time any of you uh, messages me, I take a screenshot and send it to my friends. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. I love it. Look at this. We're all because basically, if you become my friend, then I'm like, here's my favorite podcast. Please listen to every episode. And so now we're all fans. This is a big big deal in my friend group. (laughs) I love it. it. So do they all know that you're coming on here right now? I did call a few people to tell them. Excellent. Oh, you don't have like a group thread we can like jump in on right now? No. No, okay. okay. Different weird places. Oh, wow. You really are dedicated. You're like telling people in different pockets of your life. Okay. Oh, Oh, yeah. The the pole studio knows about it. The nail studio knows about it. (laughs) The musician community knows about it. (laughs) Doing a lot of educating. Yeah, that's right. You're educator through and through. Well, thank you for telling people about our podcast, but also thank you for telling people about mental illness and awareness of that and doing it in such an artistic way. We're big fans. Ah, 
thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Well, what a lovely lady. Yeah, that was super fun. You know, we talked online, but to interact. Yeah. Kind of face-to-face, at least over Zoom with Sarah Jickling. And her albums are called The Family Curse. And When I Get Better. And there's some other fantastic songs you should hunt down, like... Valentine, Cry Baby. Yeah. Yeah. Some great singles, too. Yeah, just look her up. Yeah. She's wonderful. Yeah. Uh, so hopefully she just got a bunch of new fans. Yeah, I hope so. So that's it for our show. Our theme music is by Brian Keith Dalton. Our administrative manager is Ian Kramer. This episode was edited by Victor Figueroa. You can support us by becoming a member of Maximum Fun. And with your support, you get all this bonus content and you become part of our family. We recognize you as cousins. You know, I misspoke on an earlier episode. I thought that we had overcome all our, all our attrition oh, yeah. in the last Max Fund Drive. It turns out we didn't quite. So we're still doing okay. But if you've been sitting there thinking I should join, well, maybe you should join. You can still join anytime and you still get the bonus content mm-hmm. and you help us out. So we greatly appreciate it. It may not be Max Fund Drive, but it could be Max Fund Walk. Hey. Hey. Wise guy. (laughs) And you can also support us by leaving a positive review. Yes. Or you can take your negative review and put it in your toaster. You can also tell a friend in person. Mm -hmm. You can uh, play it for them on the car when they're with you. And it could be us. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Or you could roll over in bed tonight, get really, really close to your partner, wait until they close their eyes and then be like, I want to recommend a podcast to you. (laughs) It's really good. It's investigative. I feel like there's three or four people out there who will just feel the need to act that out. We apologize to your partners. I bet someone who's listening to this with their partner, they're both thinking, well, tonight I'm going to do that unless Janine remembers to do that. Because if Janine remembers to do that, then I can't do that. Well, maybe she'll forget about it. Okay, well, if I don't mention it. Well, if you both do it at the same time, please <laughs> write us later. We want to hear about it. The same instant. Jinx, I owe you a Coke. And remember...
in the briefest time. I feel like we got to know each other. Bro, I appreciate you so much for that. Do you read minds or what? It's really a very sacred space you've created here. <laughs> bullseye! You've hit the bullseye, baby! Bullseye! Interviews with creators you love and creators you need to know. From MaximumFun.org and NPR. Hey, were you a reader as a kid? Like, maybe you read a lot of fantasy novels. Or horse girl books. We know how it is. But now you're an adult and you miss reading. You're so busy and you can't figure out how to get back into books. We're Reading Glasses and we're here to help. Yeah, we'll give you advice to figure out what books you love or learn to stop reading books you don't even like. We're really big proponents of dumping that book. Dump that book. But most importantly, we'll help you fall back in love with reading. Reading Glasses, every Thursday on Maximum Fun. MaximumFun.org Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.